Welcome to the latest episode of On the Case from EG, this time looking at the Supreme Court decision in Williams and Others versus Aviva Investors Ground Rent GP Limited and Another, an important judgment on the apportionment of service charges that will be of significant interest to residential landlords and tenants. Joining me to discuss the case are Simon Allison and Brooke Lyne, barristers at Landmark Chambers, who appeared instructed by Pennington's Manches Cooper LLP for the successful respondent landlords in the appeal. Welcome, Simon and Brooke. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Great to have you on the podcast. So um, I imagine that the dispute between uh, residential tenants and their landlord over service charge apportionment uh, in this case is quite a common uh, dispute. So. Um, Simon, can I ask you first to outline the nature, the precise nature of the argument in this case and the stance taken on the issue by your client, uh, the landlords? Yeah, I mean, look, this is um, a really common point of dispute and apportionment disputes, they can be pretty difficult to resolve. Um, It's worth noting sometimes, and that was the the case uh, here, the percentages can be just wrong, so everyone's paying a bit too little or a bit too much to enable the party that's providing services to recover 100%. And, and, you know, it it doesn't have to be 100%, but it'd be a Mm. rare situation where the landlord's not looking to recover 100%, no more, no less. But more often you get, you know, one leaseholder or a group of leaseholders, uh, and they'll just consider that their individual particular proportion is wrong because, uh, you know, they disagree with the broad apportionment methods. They might say, well, I think it should be split per unit rather than based on net floor area or or gross floor area and and so that's got to be resolved and the real difficulty is that if the proportions add up to 100 percent and one of the leaseholders wants to pay less that means the others are going to have to pay more Mm. to get you to 100 percent it's obvious but that's why this is really um ripe for um ripe for dispute because as soon as one person wants to pay less someone else (laughs) has got to got to uh, pick up the bill so it's pitting leaseholder on leaseholder so it's a bit different mm. from other types of disputes it can be very difficult to resolve so the classic answer is it's look it's the landlord has the discretion uh, the landlord typically has no skin in the game so they can reasonably expect it to come to come up with some sensible sort of solution so this case here in Aviva and Williams and Unusually, uh, both Brooke and I have had involvement in this case since before it even got issued in the FTT <laughs> through the FTT, the Upper Tribunal, Court of Appeal, Supreme Court. And it started as just a sort of classic service charge dispute in the FTT. There was lots of points in dispute, but one related to the uh, proportions that were being used to apportion the uh, communal heating charges. And the landlord was using proportions that were much higher than the initial proportions that had been specified in the lease. And that's essentially because there were multiple blocks being served from a communal heating system. But um, because of changes on the estate, it it had never really worked. And as far as we can work out, there had always been different proportions used since the year dot, since before Aviv had purchased. Um, So if the landlord had stuck with the initial proportions that it said in the lease, there'd have been a substantial shortfall in recovery. I Mm -hmm. think it would have been about 40 odd percent. So the landlord said, look, under the terms of this lease, I can vary the proportions. Therefore, these increased proportions are perfectly valid. Uh, And in this instance, we had a lease that states that the proportions payable are X percent or such part as the landlord may otherwise reasonably determine. Mm -hmm. So that is the central point in, in this case is 
uh, can the landlord rely on the provision that says instead of it being the initial fixed percentage x percent do the words or such part as the landlord may otherwise reasonably determine um, have effect or not that's nice and straightforward and i, I imagine uh, as many leaseholders would uh, they didn't necessarily want to pay a, a higher percentage uh, in this case so so brooke uh, how did they put their case Yes, so you're absolutely right. They didn't didn't agree with that approach. So before the tribunal, what they said was, is that the provision in the lease um, that enabled the landlord to specify different percentages was void. And the way that they asserted that was based upon an argument um, arising from Section 27A6 of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1985, which provides that an agreement by the tenant of a dwelling other than a post-dispute arbitration agreement, is void insofar as it purports to provide for a determination, A, in a particular manner, or B, on particular evidence, of any question which may be the subject of an application under section one or three. And subsections one and three are the parts of the act that essentially enable the tribunal to determine whether or not a service charge um, is payable or would be payable. So they base their argument upon that provision um, and they said that um, essentially based upon a case called Windermere and Wild from 2013, it's a case that was in the upper tribunal, they said that the effect of that provision was that the entire part of the lease um, allowing for reapportionment was void. Um, Windermere was slightly different in that the lease contained a single method of apportionment um, and it required the tenant to pay a fair proportion, very broad. Um, mm -hmm. And what um, happened there, it also, the lease in that case also said that the term, determination of the landlord surveyor on apportionment was final and binding. And there's no doubt um, that the final and binding part of an agreement that sort of essentially says the tribunal can't interfere um, would be engaged by Section 27A6 because it would be trying to oust the tribunal's jurisdiction. However, in Windermere, the deputy president. Um, went a bit further than, than merely looking at the final and binding part. He went further and said that actually the effect of Section 27A6 was to abrogate the role of the landlord completely and that instead the tribunal stepped into the landlord's shoes as the person entitled to determine what the fair proportion ought to be. And that the, the leaseholders in this case essentially took that reasoning quite a bit further to say that actually the entire reapportionment provision in, in the lease in this case needed to be deleted. Um, and there had been an, another of, a number of cases that had followed on from Windermere. So Windermere was kind of the first case where this came up. There was another decision um, shortly afterwards called Gator, where the same judge um, concluded the same, came to the same conclusion. And then shortly after that, a case called Sheffield and Oliver um, in the Court of Appeal where this was kind of a peripheral point, but the Court of Appeal endorsed the reasoning um, in Windermere and Gator um, and said that those cases were correctly um, decided. So essentially it had been pretty clear on the Court of Appeal authorities that this was a the approach that needed to be taken. So the leaseholder said essentially following the logic of those cases, um, all of the words in the lease um, allowing for substitution of percentages were void, needing just the initial fixed percentages. OK, so uh, you mentioned that you've been involved with this case all the way through. Uh, so against that background, how were these issues resolved along the way? 
uh, as the case made its way from the first tier tribunal to the upper tribunal to the Court of Appeal. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, we had three different answers along the way from three <laughs> different courts, uh, which uh, always fills um, always fills a, a client with glee. Um, the, the FTT agreed with the landlord's position. So they agreed with us that the ability uh, to vary was not rendered void by Section 27A6 or the case law Brooks just mentioned. Um, because the tribunal's jurisdiction isn't ousted in any way by the provision because there's nothing in uh, the least words that say x percent or such other percentage as the landlord reasonably determines they don't stop the tribunal reviewing what the landlord has come up with there's no final and binding provision so on and so forth um so the the tribunal uh, agreed with us uh, and it agreed that the landlord's substituted proportions were reasonable. So the contractual requirement under the lease was that the landlord comes up with a reasonable alternative. So they were satisfied as to that. So leaseholders obviously weren't happy. They appealed to the upper tribunal uh, and that appeal was determined on the papers by Judge Cook and she reached a different conclusion. She allowed the leaseholders appeal and found that section 27A6 had the effect of rendering the whole of the provision void. So all you were left with was just that initial fixed percentage and no ability to vary at all. It was struck through of no effect. There's a wonderful sort of Monty Python-esque section in, in her judgment. It's, you know, it is no more. And if the parties wanted to vary the proportions, therefore, they'd have to agree that between them. Well, that's never going to happen. Or uh, you'd have to apply to the tribunal under its limited jurisdiction to vary the terms of the leases under the 87 Act. Uh, and that that is quite an unwieldy way of doing things and it won't always be engaged. For example, if the proportions add up to 100%, you can't use the Landlord and Tenants Act 1987 provisions uh, absent agreement or substantial agreement. So that was the upper tribunal's approach. And the landlord then obtained permission for a second appeal from the Court of Appeal to offer retrusted uh, mid-pandemic to the Court of Appeal. Uh, and they found a third way. So what they're trying to do was reconcile uh, the earlier authorities. And you'll recall there was the Sheffield and Oliver case that Brooke mentioned, which is a court of appeal authority. So they were bound by uh, they were by, bound by that decision that uh, Windermere and Gator were correct, correctly decided. Uh, so they found a way of reconciling those earlier authorities with the slightly different facts of this case, because all those earlier authorities they'd looked at where there wasn't an initial fixed percentage, there was just a you know, requirement that you pay a fair proportion, a reasonable proportion or an equitable share and all the other variations one sees rather than an initial fixed percentage um, that, that can be uh, varied. And the leaseholders against uh, that in the course of appeal were making reference to what's known as the blue pencil test for severability. So what they were saying was, unless you can strike through all of the offending words and what remains still makes sense, the whole provision has to go. And they were arguing what you can't do is, for example, cross out landlord and insert tribunal. So the, the effect of the Windermere and Gator line of authorities is essentially the tribunal steps into the shoes of the landlord. So instead of the landlord making the decision, the tribunal makes the decision. And leaseholds were saying you can't do that because then you have to write the word tribunal or court into the lease and that that is uh, that isn't permissible under the the blue pencil test 
Now, I don't want to dwell on the blue pencil test. We, we actually argued all of this in the Supreme Court as well, and it's sort of fascinating for a small subset of lawyers, but it's utterly <laughs> irrelevant to the outcome of the Supreme Court's uh, reasoning, uh, as we'll come on to. So I don't want to get, get bogged down in that because it's, uh, it's going to be a bit niche. But, I mean, the fundamental point is the Court of Appeal overturned the upper tribunal decision. They held provision for reapportionment was void, but only to the extent that the landlord can exercise it. Instead, the tribunal was to exercise it. And because anyone can apply under Section 27A to, uh, for a determination, that meant, interestingly, that instead of it being an option for the landlord to vary the proportions, it was turned into a bilateral right because the leaseholder could also apply. And in fact, really, it was a multilateral right because all the other leaseholders could apply. So actually, the outcome after the Court of Appeal was a slightly bizarre situation where uh, any one leaseholder was sort of hostage to any other leaseholder wanting to make an application. And then the tribunal has to determine it afresh, as mm. opposed to just endorsing what the landlord has done. So we were left with a, a slightly odd position after the Court of Appeal. But as I say, the Court of Appeal was bound by its own decision in Sheffield and Oliver, and it managed to reconcile all the authorities uh, pretty satisfactorily, really, um, but its hands were tied. Anyway, nonetheless, we won in the Court of Appeal on the authorities, uh, but the um, the leaseholders did manage to obtain permission to the Supreme Court, uh, and that's where we were uh, back in back in December. So, Brooke, uh, what was the the key question that the Supreme Court had to decide on the leaseholders' uh, appeal, and uh, how did it approach the matter? Yeah. So. The key thing that the Supreme Court had to decide is what was the scope and the effect of Section 27A6 of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1985 on this particular lease. And as you say, there were three there were three arguments or options available to it. One, leaseholders option. Um, Judge Cook was right that you strike through all of the words um, allowing for reapportionment in the lease. Option two, Court of Appeals approach um, that you you put the tribunal into the shoes of the landlord, um, allowing for reapportionment, but has the effect of turning unilateral right into a multilateral right. Or option three, um, which was an argument that the landlord couldn't previously pursue because of um, a decision in Sheffield and Oliver that essentially was binding on the Court of Appeal. And option three was to say that that entire line of cases was wrong. Um, so Windermere, Gator, Sheffield and Oliver uh, were wrong and that actually Section 27A6 was not engaged at all, certainly on, on the lease in this case, because all that provision was designed to do was to be an anti-avoidance provision. It was never intended to confer, confer upon the tribunal jurisdiction um, and actually um, it, it wasn't the job of the tribunal to get involved in these kind of disputes um, on reapportionment or indeed any other management function within the, the landlord's remit under the lease. So that was the, the new argument that was for the first time raised in Supreme Court because it was the first time mm -hmm. that one could argue it. And the Supreme Court's approach was, was to carefully consider the scope of the FT's jurisdiction within Section 27A, um, 1 and 3. Um, and that is about payability and the FTT's power to consider the payability of a service charge, which involves looking at the, the, the lease provisions, but also the statutory provisions and deciding, is this service charge actually payable? 
And having looked at that closely and then had a look uh, and then having looked at um, subsection six, the tribunal agreed with us that actually this was only an anti-avoidance provision um, and payability didn't require um, the tribunal to be looking at, well, what's the what's the apportionment and do we need to determine the apportionment? Um, and indeed, that argument, as the Supreme Court said, that the, ra the rationale and the argument that have that have been argued in Windermere, if taken further, would involve the tribunal eventually making all range of management decisions um, in substitution for the landlord, which affect the, the amount of service charge payable, um, which in reality would be completely impractical um, and was not, the, was not the point of Section 27A6, which is just an anti-avoidance provision. So the Supreme Court accepted the reasoning in Windermere um, and the other cases that followed it had gone wrong. Um, the role of the tribunal was about reviewing the contractual um, legitimacy of the landlord's reapportionment um, and was not to determine anything or to determine the reapportionment for itself. And uh, that essentially reverted back to a position with the tribunal operating under a, a review function, looking at the contractual and statutory legitimacy of service charge demands and their payability. Um, but not going beyond that. So the upshot decision was that the apportionment provisions in this particular lease didn't engage Section 27A6 because there wasn't any final and binding wording or any wording that purported to oust the jurisdiction of the tribunal. Um, and the landlord was entitled to continue using the varied apportionments and the role that the um, FTT had actually taken in this case of looking at what the landlord had done and checking that it had been in accordance with the lease was actually correct. So the FTT all those years ago um, was quite right. <laughs> uh, and uh, you, you got your, your decision relatively quickly uh, in this case, at least compared to certain other uh, high profile Supreme Court um, appeals that we've, we've dealt with recently. Um, uh, and yeah. you know, that result, that result that, that, that things have, you know, that, um, it's, it's endorsed the, the FTT decision does mean that the Supreme Court's uh, reasoning, even though the appeal was dismissed, uh, does differ from the Court of Appeal. Uh, so that is that is an important uh, factor, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, um, the, the effect of the decision is, you know, uh, Windermere has been overturned, Gators overturned, Sheffield and Oliver on this point. Uh, and uh, there's actually a good number of other authorities that aren't referred to uh, that have all, uh, you know, in the judgment are not referred to, um, but have followed the same sort of line of thinking. So there's quite a few authorities uh, that that now can't stand. And we're back to the position we were in pre-2013. It's, you know, a reasonably settled, I think, in principles position. So hopefully that's the last words on it uh, <laughs> for now. But, you know, as, as a side note, it's worth you know, it's an entertaining note that Lord Briggs gives the lead judgment in our case, overturning Sheffield and Oliver. Uh, but he was, in fact, the lead judge in Sheffield and Oliver <laughs> um, when he sat in the Court of Appeal. Uh, so, in effect, he's overturned his own decision. So if you look at the decision, you'll see at paragraph 30 reference to uh, acknowledging with embarrassment and contrition that the analysis in, in our case can't be reconciled with the earlier cases. <laughs> Um, so he does recognise that the, the Court of Appeal, you know, as a three, got it wrong. But it has to be said, I don't think the fault lies with him, it, that the point was really very peripheral in Sheffield and Oliver. 
and it doesn't seem to have been argued out very fully at all by the parties and I think it was actually sort of thrown in there at the last minute from what we can work out you know it wasn't a central central point so it's sort of an accident that it that we ended up where we were in that sense um, and I think we have to also remember the upper tribunal is a, a specialist tribunal and the upper tribunal kicked off this line of reasoning with Windermere and Gator and there's always sort of I think uh, sort of possibly a degree of deference in that sense to a specialist tribunal you've got to have good reasons to, to go down a, a different line and I, I think that the reason when you when you read and I remember when Windermere and Gator came out it sort of made sense you know you could see I'm not sure whether I agreed with it at the time but I could, I could <laughs> it, it all seemed perfectly logical uh, uh, um, but the trouble is it sort of worked well with a fair and reasonable proportion type case but it doesn't work so well in ours and as you extrapolate the reasoning out to other types of provision like ours the trouble is the argument became less and less tenable so it's like a sort of mission creep because you started with Windermere and Gator and the outcome as endorsed in Sheffield and Oliver was that the tribunal stands in the shoes of the landlord but if the tribunal's making management decisions in place of the landlord on apportionment why isn't it making decisions about whether to repair the roof or replace it there's nothing special about apportionment it's just one of a number of landlord discretions under a lease so you know when did when did the FTT become a property manager and if the landlord can't decide on it what other landlord discretions were going to get caught so that's the sort of you'll see reference in the Supreme Court's judgment to the sort of Pandora's box opening mm. uh, and it's that concept of um it's that that concept of where where does it all end if we follow this to its logical conclusion mm. and in fact the tribunal's role is specified it's on section 27a1 and 3 to determine whether a service charge is payable or would be payable so you're looking at reading the lease under the terms of the lease subject to the statutory overlay that you get for residential property is this sum payable and that's their role their role isn't there to uh make make the decisions afresh they're there to review what the landlord's done so that's where we've that's where we've ended up and if you don't have that position no landlord can do anything without any degree mm. of confidence because they'd be making a decision but knowing the tribunal might come up with you know the landlord might come up with a reasonable solution and the tribunal might come up with a different reasonable solution well that's mm. a crazy way of carrying on because you have to apply to the tribunal endlessly to have any confidence about whether the money you're about to spend which you know let's face it can be millions uh especially in the context of so you know an awful lot of these cladding projects that are now going on there, there's a lot of high value works going on um so you know we're back to a nice principled position the tribunal reviews the landlord's exercise of its discretion but the landlord if it's sensible and it reads the lease ought to have a reasonable degree of confidence that it's not open to challenge so the free-for-all has gone and I think the only, the only other thing I'd really emphasise is people sometimes think with service charges there's this general reasonableness test. Mm. There really, there is section 19 of the mm. Act says that the costs have to be reasonably incurred, but nothing in section 19 has anything to do with apportionment. So the landlord's apportionment doesn't necessarily have to be reasonable. The landlord has to come up with the apportionment in accordance with the test set out in the lease, and it has to mm. make its decision rationally. Um, not taking into account irrelevant factors, so on and so forth, but it's not a general reasonableness test. So landlord has um, 
landlords can have a reasonable degree of confidence in light of this decision when they do reapportion. And I think that's good for landlords and leaseholders because who wants to get dragged into all these disputes unnecessarily? Of course, you want to have some recourse back to the tribunal if something mad happens. But um, you know, I think I, I think we're in a, a happier place. We're all concerned now. And uh, in fairness to the judge, I mean, who among us doesn't have cause to to regret some of the things we did a decade ago? Uh, I think. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, that said, uh, you know, if 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 this is a kind of return to the orthodoxy, we we do have that ten year period in which I imagine that people have been conducting their affairs differently, and you know, advice will have to change as a result of this decision. So, so just sort of in summary, how significant will the implications of this case be? Uh, for for landlords and tenants across the country. Yeah, and I mean, Simon has just touched on some of that. Um, certainly, you know, there will be a lot of landlords who feel better um, mm. in light of this decision because, you know, if they have historically reapportioned service charges in accordance with the lease, um, there was this ongoing fear since Sheffield and Oliver and Windermere that there might be a massive hole in that in that reapportionment if a leaseholder challenged it and, and the tribunal came up with a different apportionment. Um, there's no doubt this case um, will, affect, will affect hundreds of thousands of leaseholders. Um, this kind of provision is very, very common. Um, and the majority of those leaseholders may not get into disputes, but I think the reality of this decision is that there will be fewer disputes, fewer opportunities to challenge um, apportionment given the scope of the tribunal's jurisdiction is limited. Um, so that, in some ways, is a bad bad news for the lawyers, um, but probably good news for parties. Um, and it's just going to be a simple question of the tribunal reviewing whether or not the landlord has done, you know, a reapportionment mm. in accordance with the lease provisions. So that role will be quite limited. Um, as long as a landlord, as Simon says, can justifiably explain how and why they've reapportioned as they have, and it meets a rationality test, um, there's not going to be that much scope for challenge. Um, but I mean, this on the one hand, this can be sort of treated as a landlord friendly decision um, in that, as I say, the, the risk of shortfalls will have been reduced for landlords. And obviously, on the facts of this case in particular, the landlord was successful. Um, but actually, personally, I think it's also probably a good outcome for the majority of leaseholders as well. And the reason for that is, as Simon spoke about earlier, the outcome of the Court of Appeals decision was that the unilateral right had become a multilateral right, which meant that essentially any leaseholder could challenge the apportionment. And because, as Simon explained, apportionment does pit leaseholder against leaseholder, one person being unhappy with the apportionment in their building could essentially put everyone else mm. um, in that building in the mix of litigation without wanting to. Um, and you'd be hostage to any of your neighbours. And, and the outcome of this decision stops that. Um, and in cases of apportionment in particular, when it is leaseholder against leaseholder, neighbour against neighbour, um, it seems to me reducing the scope for, for sort of acrimonious litigation of that sort um, is definitely a good thing for leaseholders. And actually restoring the landlord to decision maker um, in these kind of decisions makes sense um, because it's the landlord who, generally speaking, doesn't have skin in the game because it's, mm. it's leaseholder. So broadly speaking, although it is a, it's a positive outcome for landlords, actually it, it probably is a good outcome for, for most leaseholders as well. Okay, good news all around. Um, thank you, Brooke and Simon. 
uh, for joining me to explain in wonderfully clear terms uh, the importance uh, and significance of Williams uh, and Aviva. Uh, to those of you at home, you have been listening to On The Case from EG.